0: We are in a series entitled, Our Comforter, The Ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Life of a Believer. And uh, this morning we are in the 13th part, and there will be but one more, so rest at ease. We want to talk this morning about the fruit of the Spirit. This series on the life of the Spirit in a believer's life is really a very comforting and uh, encouraging study, I believe. Because what we're learning is that God has provided everything that we need. And that supply, that need, is himself. It is the Holy Spirit. So that we are provided all the spiritual resources we would ever need when you came to faith. We have the Holy Spirit. This morning we want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we begin by looking at what Jesus had to teach about it. Jesus taught that trees are distinguished by their fruit. This is also true of each of us. We are known by... The good or the bad fruit that characterizes our deeds, our attitudes, and our words. Jesus said in Matthew seven seventeen, So every fruit tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The crop grows and ripens. Notice the next phrase. It's very, very helpful. The crop grows and ripens, not by the effort or the work of the fruit, but by the life flowing up from the roots through the branches of the tree. He's really describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The man without Christ bears fruit. Fruit consistent With his fallen nature. And his fruit is referred to as the works of the flesh. And the man with Christ, however, is distinguished by the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is personal, it's dynamic, and it is living. The fruit of the Spirit are the manifestations of the divine nature living in each and every one of us. For there to be good fruit, a tree must be rooted deeply in healthy and rich soil. I know that because I at home have a lemon tree. I have tried so much, so hard, so long to try to get that tree to grow. It looks Worse than when I first planted it, by far. And I have done everything I do, but I think the problem is not the watering and not the gardener. It is the soil. So for there to be good fruit, there needs to be good root system tapping into the resources that makes that true. That uh, fruit grow. And in the same way, we must be rooted in the soil of God's love. Just a little side note here, Um, I am so convinced that we need to keep hearing about the love of God. We could talk about the works of the flesh a lot today, but don't forget, right up front here, we want to talk about the love of God. Because the roots that are in the love of God will produce this kind of fruit that we're talking about. We need to constantly hear about the love of God that is manifested to us when Christ died on the cross and is revealed here this morning in front of us in the bread and the cup. God loves us. We're lavished in his love. And we need to remember that. And that's kind of what Paul was saying when he wrote about the love of God he said this is his prayer for the church at Ephesus it would be the prayer for us here this morning as well that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in what? love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the what? The love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is urging the church, reminding the church to not forget the love of God. We'll talk about the love of God very quickly when we get into the fruit of the Spirit, but it's so important. That each of us know that if you are a child of God, you are deeply loved. And who can understand the depth of that? Every true believer is rooted in the soil of God's love. He planted us. He nourishes us. And he continually trims, prunes, and cares for us. Now, the Spirit does not enter our lives to make us bigger, better trees. Nor does He make a valiant effort to try and make our fruit sweeter. Instead, He produces new life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may grow character consistent with our position in Christ. So, this morning we're talking about what the Spirit can do in the life of a child of God. Now, let's look at Galatians chapter 5, and I would urge you to use your Bibles. You have an outline that's laid out there for you in your worship folder. Matter of fact, the scriptures on the left side. Or if you don't use your Bible as a book and you do have an iPad or iPhone or whatever you got, please look at the scriptures. I'll try to show the scriptures here. But I want you this morning to know that what is being said is coming from the scripture and just not coming from an old guy. That somehow what is said here is timeless. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Those led by the Spirit aren't under law. What a liberating concept. What a wonderful thing to know that those who are in Christ and led by the Spirit are not under law. Now, those who are led by the Spirit they do bear good fruit. You see, as the Lord leads, he also produces good fruit. As we come to this scripture, I, I want to make something also very clear to all of you. It's, it's sort of my passion. If I haven't got this across to you this morning and you leave thinking, you know, Pastor Don gave us uh, 14 things we shouldn't do. And I, I'm going to try really hard not to do those things this week. And, and I am going to try the nine things that he wanted us to do. If, I, if that's how you leave, then I haven't done my job. Alright? That would be giving you more law. The, we already have the Mosaic Law. That exposes our inability to keep those commands. We don't need more law. What do we need more of? Grace. Thank you. We need grace. We need to hear about grace. When we talk about the works of the flesh, you need to hear about grace. That's what it's here for. That's why it's listed. Therefore, the list of the works of the flesh we're going to look at are not 14 more thou shall nots. These will not keep you from breaking the law. They will not keep you from sin. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit aren't nine more thou shalt to become godly. But what we're talking about this morning is the Spirit of God who produces these godly thoughts, attitudes, and motivations. It's the life of Christ in us. If we are not being led by the spirit, we're being led by the flesh. When we are led by the spirit, there will be good fruit. Those who are led by the spirit are no longer under the dictates of the law. The demands of the law. Paul is saying there is no law. Against the fruit of the spirit. That means we're no longer under the condemnation. That comes from the law. Likewise there are no set of laws. That can prevent us from sinning. Talk about our country. (laughs) More legislation. Is it going to keep us from sinning? No. Do we need more laws? Probably. Because we are sinning more than ever before. Do you understand? That the law is brought in to show that we are sinners. The law is brought in so there can be judgment. Hmm, very interesting. And there are no laws that can produce what the Holy Spirit can do. The law, therefore, was given to show our desperate need of Christ. You are here this morning... To learn that we need Christ above everything else. You can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. I can't stop my sinful flesh from rearing its ugly head. As much as I try. I wish I could stomp it out. It just keeps coming back haunting me. However, there is God's grace. So therefore, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And this meal that we're going to take of is remind us that Christ paid all of the price of our sin. Now the works of the flesh, we have to talk about them. (laughs) They're identified for us in Galatians 5.19. And let me just say, this is a list of typical, but not exhaustive list of sin or works of the flesh. You say, why do we need to know this? Simply this, we need to put labels on our sin. So when it occurs in us, you could go, there I am again. I need to repent of that. I need to appropriate God's grace and move on. But we need to know that these are the works of the flesh so that when you identify them in yourself, you can repent and then receive forgiveness and grace. But also, when you see this manifested around you, you need to identify it. That's what it is. I think you understand. He's given us vocabulary. He's given us uh, ways of understanding what sin looks like. Because for many of us, sin to us fits only certain categories. Like, now, that that... That person there did it. That's a sin right there. But what about gossip? What about some of the ones we're going to look at here? Fits of anger? Well, that's different for me. <laughs> when I become angry, and it, it's, it's understandable. Now, wait a minute. Let's go back and look at the works of the flesh to see what they are. Now, the works, the effects of the flesh... They are evident. Evident in us, evident around us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Paul, hold on just a second. That's almost more than I can take. But there's more. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The things like this, that's why I say it's not an exhaustive list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things or continue in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's take part what Paul said. What does he mean by the flesh? Well, the flesh is a description of our old, fallen, sinful nature. We all still struggle with it. It's our human nature acting apart from faith in God. That's why the Bible says in Romans 14.23 that whatever is not of faith is sin. The heart is desperately wicked and deceptive. It seeks what it thinks is good even though God has warned us in the law that it is not good. This is the knowledge of good and evil that Adam thought would be so good. And uh, how did that work for him? And how does that affect us? Not so good. You see... It brought about sin, this knowledge of good and evil. Deciding for ourselves what's good and evil. It brought sin, it brought misery, it brought enslavement, it brought despair, and it brought death into the world. That's what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing in our own battle, is trying to determine for ourselves what is good and evil. But fortunately for us, and I say us, those who are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He convicts us of sin and then leads us to repentance. So you say, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, one of the things is he convicts us of sin and then leads us to repentance. Actually, when I say he leads us, to conviction we all should say praise god let's give him let's, let's let's give a cheer let's give a praise because if you didn't have him convicting of us our sins you wouldn't be a believer i am so grateful that he convicts me but his conviction comes with comfort it comes with hope with promise because he's leading me to repentance so that in we go into, the, into repentance, then will come the fruit. Then comes the joy and the love and so forth. Um, I've heard it said that people without Christ are the most miserable people in the world. I do not accept that. I find a number of unbelievers who are more comfortable than many Christians. So who are the most miserable people in the world? They are unrepentant believers who are fighting against the pull and the tug of the Holy Spirit to repent. Now, John, in his first epistle... He describes for us, if you would, the sequence, the pattern of our desires that tempt us to sin. Let's look at it real quickly. For all that is in the world, the desires, the passions of the flesh, the desires, the lusts, the pleasures of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh begins here. Where sinful thoughts from the world are entertained and then stored. And then these thoughts seek to find satisfaction through the windows of our eyes. And when the eyes lock in on the object, the object of desire, and that's when Pride kicks in. Pride kicks in and persuades us that you can do it. You could take it and you won't get caught. There won't be those consequences that people talk about. And by the way, you deserve it. (laughs) You can get it and you deserve it. Take all you can out of life now, regardless of the consequences. And then that's when sin is indulged. Guilt is felt and painful consequences result. That's why believers who are resisting the work of the Spirit are miserable. And they should be. It's a sign that we're a child of God. You see, sin can appear very attractive, innocent and harmless. Uh, It's a little bit like... uh, petting my new puppy, named Barney, or Barnabas. Now, he is as cute as he can be. I'm a, a proud, see, father? Okay, I'm a proud owner. And he is fun to cuddle, but watch out. He has teeth as sharp as razor blades. I can show you afterwards my wounds. And when I see him wagging his tail. I I want to reach down and pet my woolly friend. He is absolutely very awesome. But when I do. He slices and dices my hands and my arms. Now if you've had a puppy. You're saying yeah I know. And I'll show you my war wounds later. I've seen from others. And. That's the enticement of sin. That's in the same kind of way. You see, my flesh is consumed with the idea, and then I'm attracted to what looks good and cuddly, convinced I need it, and I deserve it. But the bite of sin can be fatal. You see, we're vulnerable to these temptations because we're still in a battle. In a battle with the tug of sin. Jesus was very straightforward about this battle. In Mark 7. So the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, they come from the heart. What comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts... Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Notice Jesus using some of the same words that Paul will use in Galatians 5. He's telling us that these works, these effects, these deeds of the flesh, they are evident. They're evident within and they're evident around. That means these works expose what's really in our hearts. What we're really like. Now let's look at some of these together. Those in the flesh are made evident by their works. Let's start on them. The works of the flesh. First he mentions misplaced sexual lusts or passions... In three adulterous ways. The first is sexual immorality or sometimes referred to as fornication. And the Greek word that is used here is, see if you recognize it, pornea. Pornea. It is a general term that describes misdirected desire in and outside of marriage. It is desire gone bad. Desire outside of God's will. This includes adultery. Which is sex outside of marriage. Fornication. Which is sex before marriage. Homosexuality. Which is sex outside God's design. And incest. Sex within the family. The word pornea. Also includes visual sexual stimulation of the mind and body through pornographic images. Now, these images leave indelible impressions, they're stamped on the mind with twisted expectations which require greater and greater stimulation to gain any pleasure and that pleasure can never be satisfied it just takes you into a a deep hole it leaves you empty the chains that bind us are not just made of cold steel but also images images in the mind that distort and pervert The pleasure God did intend for us. We have to keep moving. The second impression or expression here is called impurity or uncleanness. The word that Paul uses here is another word we might be familiar with. It is catharsis. What do we mean by catharsis? It means giving unbridled, full expression without restraint to defiling, impure thoughts and passions. Third, sensuality. Sometimes listed as lewdness. That's a reckless, uninhibited preoccupation with sexual desire. Usually without a sense of shame or remorse. Sometimes it takes the form of crude jokes and foul cursing. Remember, we're coming to the good stuff. But we've got to go through this first with you. Next, Paul mentions misplaced religious passions. The first he gives is idolatry. Idolatry appeals to the flesh. That's why it's under category of of the flesh because our flesh loves to feel and look religious. Idolatry can be the worship of a carved image or anything that we adore, cherish, or find our pleasure in. Now, unknowingly... Lurking behind idolatry, the worship of self-made gods, are demonic spirits. I go to the jungle of Peru, and I can tell you that's exactly true. Idolatry comes in many forms, but ultimately it is robbing God of the honor and glory that he deserves. Then there's sorcery. Paul is just so right on. Sorcery. This word comes from the Greek word... What does that sound like to you? Pharmakia. Yeah. It's the word that we use for pharmacy or pharmaceuticals or pharmacists. Historically, sorcery was related to the use of powerful mind-altering drugs... In magic and in pagan idolatry. When drugs are used. Even outside of a religious context. They can addict the body. And become the gateway to demonic influence. That's why it's put here under sorcery. Satan uses sorcery. And mind-altering drugs to enslave our our fleshly desires. Now, it gets very personal. (laughs) These are destructive relational passions. And he begins with hatred or enmity. uh, This is antagonism. Nagging irritations, bitter opposition, vindictive grudges that seek their pleasure by getting back at others. Strife or contentions or jealousy. Contentions are expression of the need to argue, to duel and belittle others. It is the insistence on being right at the expense of others. Their opinions and their beliefs. Sadly, this can be seen in the church. To win something to Christ or win some it over to your doctrine, it goes beyond friendly discussion and persuasion into contentions. Sometimes contentions are also described as jealousy, part of that same word. And this is the green-eyed monster that seeks to take away what they see others have so they can spend it on their own pleasure. Contentions spread gossip and slander. And sadly, this is disguised as religious zeal. Then there is outbursts, jealousies. This is the sudden explosion of pent-up, unbridled anger, and the tongue is transformed into a dagger to slash and destroy others. It is misplaced passion bent on twist and twisted into a sharp weapon. You can destroy someone with your words. You don't need a gun. It is misplaced passion that's bent and twisted. Uncontrolled verbal anger can be as destructive as physical or sexual abuse. Then there's... (laughs) if you would, outbursts of wrath. It's that sudden explosion of pent-up anger. And that outburst of wrath can turn into selfish ambitions. Selfish ambition is seeking our good above uh, the good of others. It is the utter disregard of others... That causes factions or divisions as long as they feel they can advance their own cause and their own self righteous reputation. And selfish ambition causes what? Dissensions. Dissension arises by those who accuse, judge, and sentence others by gossip and slander, usually disguised, as I said before, as religious zeal or protest. The flesh is in full display, stirring up controversy in domestic, political, business, and religious settings. Many times, meetings become... The arena for the flesh. You learn things in meetings that you didn't even know. I really, personally, this is a little side note, little rabbit trail. In my past ministry, the most discouraging times I've had in my ministry were congregation meetings. But they were needed. But it became opportunities for people to vent. To accuse after one particular congregation meeting, was absolutely destructive to the pastors, the elders, the leaders of the church. The pastors and I, you know what we did? We went down to a mission south of us and we did the Stations of the Cross. <laughs> we just went through every station, just prayed together, prayed together. We, we were so discouraged about ready to just give it up. But that's what happens when the flesh is released. And then these dissensions called are called factions. Disputes bring about division. And division causes churches and marriages to split. Um, and last, there's that old thing of envy again. Pride, envy, covetousness go to extreme measures to satisfy fleshly pleasure. They are convinced they deserve what others have, so they plot to obtain these possessions or usurp somebody else's possession almost at any means possible. Do you know why Jesus was crucified? His claims. But the Bible said he was crucified because of envy. 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 Now, Paul doesn't stop there. Misplaced passions of intemperance. There is first that familiar problem of drunkenness. When someone is drunk, it dulls the mind and inhibits the decision-making process. Therefore, the works of the flesh are much more evident. Then he has, well... Revelries or orgies, as some translations say. These are riotous, out-of-control parties that usually include drinking, drugs, and other things. In this environment, folly is celebrated, elevated above fun, and it usually results in unexpected troubles. Now, Paul concludes this section on the flesh to tell the man without Christ he must be warned. Listen to Paul. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who continually, as inserted here, do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are still in the flesh, the person without Christ, because of understanding the flesh, they are in need of a Savior. To enter the kingdom of heaven, one must place their faith in Christ alone and accept God's grace alone. Those who reject God's offer of grace shall continue to live in the kingdom of darkness, now, and the book of Revelation says, will also be forever in darkness. But those who inherit the kingdom of God, who are they? I can tell you who it is. It's those who are led by the Spirit. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those led by the Spirit are made evident by their fruit. Now let's look at the fruit here very quickly. Jesus said, again, using that analogy of a tree or a vine, "...abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches." He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. The fruit that is mentioned here is like a sweet cluster of grapes. They're grown by the life of the Spirit in us. We don't produce them. The Spirit does through us. And apart from Christ, you can't bear good fruit. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit mentioned by Paul. But the fruit of the spirit. In contrast to the works of the flesh. This is everything I want. This is everything I want to enjoy. This is everything I want to give. It's what you want. Love. I want to be loved. And I want to love. Joy. I want that every day. Peace. In the midst of conflict. Patience. When you want to give up. Kindness. Goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, against such laws there is no law. Paul begins with love. And you know why? Without love, we're not disciples of Christ. Somebody says, I love God, but don't love one another. I'm not one of God's. See, love is that first fruit that shows that the love of God that is rooted in the soil and that comes from you, that would be sort of the first fruit. There's a change of love and affection. You see, God's love comes from him residing in us. His love is not produced in us apart from faith. Faith in Christ. It is unconditional love that seeks practical expression towards God and others. It is self-giving and it seeks nothing in return. Love is more than an emotion. In this section of 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about love. If you don't have love, it's like somebody crashing two symbols together. Let your noise. I don't want to hear it. Here's what he's talking about. Love is like. This is how I would like to be loved. That's how I'd like to be able to love others. But as you read this. Usually we say. This is what I have to produce. I can't do all that. I'd like to. But I can't. But fortunately the spirit can. So when you read this now. Think of this first as God's love for us. And the kind of love that he wants to produce in us. How many of you want to be loved like God loves? I do. Love is patient and is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That leaves me out. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. What an amazing description of God's love for us. It never ends. So patient with us. But that's the kind of love that the Spirit desires to produce within us as well. Where there is love, there is joy. However, where without love, relationships like marriages and churches, they have no joy. One of the characteristics of this church that I recognized uh, about seven years ago is I noticed love, love for Christ and love for each other. And when we hung around you folks, we noticed how much joy there was. The two go together. Where you know you're loved, there's joy. When you're loving people, you find the joy that comes from that. Joy is more than happiness. Happiness depends upon circumstances. Joy does not. Joy is being convinced God is infinitely good. Therefore, whatever he chooses to do or not do, he does for his glory and what? Are good. Where there is love and joy, there will be peace. Peace is more than the absence of conflict, it is tranquility within our souls in the midst of conflict. Peace doesn't mean that you won't have conflict, it means you have an inner capacity in the midst of everything around you that's chaotic. Peace comes from trusting God. That he is sovereign and we can rest in his love no matter what else is raging around us. God's love is patient and he also wants us to be patient. What does patience mean? Sometimes it's called uh, long-suffering. It means remaining under pressure without complaint or giving up. How many of you enjoy being under extreme pressure for very long, I don't. It is being steadfast and self-restained in the face of opposition or even persecution. As you can see, who could produce this? Would another set of laws produce this? No. And there's kindness. Kindness is compassion in action, sweetness in attitude. It's having a healthy concern for the well-being of others rather than all-consuming preoccupation for ourself. It's treating others justly while still showing them grace when they have failed. It is gladly helping others without expecting anything in return. There's goodness. Spouses, this is what we want to develop. Goodness means being easy to live with. It's acting and expressing moral excellence to others. It means being more generous to others. It means going above and beyond what is expected or deserved. Faithfulness is being dependable to honor commitments. Faith in us is a sovereign work of God. It is the divine persuasion of the Holy Spirit to remain true to our faith and word. We need faithfulness back in our lives. To each other. To the Lord. And to each other. If you make a commitment, you keep it. In marriage, work, if you make a promise, make every attempt to complete it. What I say, I hope to be gentle. (laughs) Gentleness is the strength of character under the Spirit's control, it is manifested with meekness and humility. Meekness, by the way, is not weakness, but actually a true test of strength and courage. If you want to know how strong somebody is, Paul would say, how gentle are they? Leaders, you lead, you correct, you rebuke with what? Gentleness, strength, authority, power under control. It is the opposite of being defensive, argumentative, angry, or vengeful. Then comes self-control. This is a resolve to master sinful desire. Appetites. Words and actions. Submitting them under the control of the Spirit. Self-control is the rule Of the Holy Spirit to say yes to his promptings and say no to the lust of the flesh. We will always be tempted. But self-control says no. As attractive as that may be, no, I'm not going to do that. With the Spirit's power, I will reject that. I will walk away. I'll flee from that. I'll say yes to the Spirit. You satisfy me. Let me find my satisfaction in you and not just in fleshly desire. Now we come to a most important part of this text. Listen to what Paul says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember what I said at the start? When you talk about the flesh you know, you should know we should all know how desperately we need Christ. And when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit we recognize how desperately we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But how does the fruit of the Spirit come through us? How do we resist those other pleasures, the pleasures of the flesh. How do we do that? Paul literally has nailed it. (laughs) I'm not much of a carpenter, but I do know that if you're going to build something, you probably are going to need nail and hammer. They nailed Christ's flesh to the cross. And when I am tempted... Led by my desires. Paul is saying, keep crucifying the flesh. Get out the nails and the hammer and go, flesh. <laughs> Get there's another I thought I dealt with that yesterday. It's back again. You keep nailing the coffin. Keep nailing the flesh to the cross. That's when the Spirit begins to do that magnificent thing called the fruit of the Spirit. So we're active in this process. When you surrender, when you obey, the fruit doesn't come from from yourself. It comes from the Spirit. That's when you say, Father, I empty myself. Fill me. Father, I say no to that pleasure and I say yes to the pleasure of the Holy Spirit. I want your life in me. Jesus taught that trees are distinguished by their fruit. And so are we. So, how are we known? How are you recognized? By your spouse? Your kids? Family? Friends? Neighbors? You're known by your fruit. And that's why Jesus called us to a radical life in Luke 9. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Paul would say, and crucify the flesh and follow me. Those who belong to Christ are made new. New creation. We're made new by the life of the Spirit in us. We have new capacities and a whole new set of desires, and this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And all of this, Paul said, is so that you would understand that your joy will come when you glorify God. We glorify God by crucifying the flesh (laughs) by the fruit of the Spirit coming forth that's what glorifies Him and the Spirit is given so that there can be much good fruit for the glory of the Father as we prepare for the Lord's Supper let's consider Paul's words I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live." But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. That's what we're about ready to do. To be mindful of that, you're no longer your own, you've been bought with a price. all those who have placed their faith in Christ alone, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, you are warmly welcomed to come to the Lord's table this morning and take of the bread and the cup. But before you come, let me give a warning as Paul did. Examine yourself to see if you are in Christ. If not... Confess your sin in prayer and then accept God's amazing grace. If you've not confessed Jesus as your Lord, you are urged not to take of the bread in the cup. Let it pass. But better yet, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Then you and everyone else are invited to come to the table by using the center aisle and depart by the left or the right aisle back to your seat. Take the bread and the cup with you. Hold it until all have been served and then we will take it together. If some of you uh, do, are unable to come forward or you would prefer not to come forward but still want to take of it, raise your hand and we'll make sure that somebody can get it to you. We will wait till all have been served and then take it together. Please remember what was said at the start. The flesh reminds us how deeply we need Christ. This shows God's provision for us. When you think of the fruit of the Spirit, you realize how desperately we need the Holy Spirit, to do his work in us. As we have some time to reflect, we're waiting for each other. Pause. Consider Christ. What kind of fruit has been grown and manifested? If it's the works of the flesh, confess it. But then quickly receive and accept God's great grace. And then participate with joy. Participate with gratitude for all Christ has done. This meal is Christ for us. Reminds us of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. And we are making every attempt to do that this morning. Let me just pray for us as we enter into this time. Father God, we thank you for this incredible um, scripture that reminds us of our desperate need of Christ. We're horrified at the works of the flesh that are in us as well as around us. Prepare our hearts now to take of the bread and the cup. Reassure the believers here this morning of how deeply you love them we want to sink our roots deeply into your love that we may sense your love flowing through us by means of your spirit. As we take now, we give you our gratitude and our thanks. Thanks, Father, for sending your Son so that we may not perish but have everlasting life. Amen.